encourage your faith. Amen? Tonight, we begin the good stuff. Actually, it's all good stuff, but this is the really fun stuff. This is the part of the book of Daniel that as you begin to see exactly what the Lord intended through this amazing book, and, and you realize that uh, this is one of those books that was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, basically all of the books of the Old Testament, with the exception of the book of Ruth, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this one in very, uh, very particular fashion, and I'll share that with you in a little bit. And so we now move on into the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. And because it is the prophetic portion, obviously it's speaking of things that ultimately would be future. And of course, as Daniel writes these things, uh, he is under the ins- inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is also in chapter 2, begins with a little bit of a chronological difficulty, and I'll explain that to you in a moment. It's actually quite simple to figure out once you realize what's being said there, and you realize that at the time they were using the Babylonian calendar, uh, not the Gregorian one that we use currently, and so uh, I'll share that with you also in a little bit. This book, probably more so than any other Old Testament book, gives us a preview of what the New Testament goes on to call uh, the times of the Gentiles or, or that church age that we happen to be in. And so it's speaking in its furthest extent of things that are yet future to us today. And so it begins to speak about future things that would come in the immediate future. So there is immediate fulfillment. There was a short-term fulfillment, and there's going to be yet longer-term or future fulfillment from what we see today. All of those things are grouped together in beginning in this chapter. And so as we begin in chapter 2, we're going to find this incredible dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. We're going to be looking at this particular chapter uh, for at least two weeks, probably three, uh, because there's so much in it. And at the time that it was written, you have to understand that there was basically really three groups of people on earth that could say that they kind of had control, but Babylon probably was the greatest of them. They would be followed by some other world empires, of course, you know of the Greeks and of the Romans. At that day and time, very, very shortly thereafter, the Assyrians would, in essence, control most of the world. The Egyptians had periodically done that. So... God is beginning to set the table, in essence, through this book for the course of human history and virtually every part of human history. And to some degree, it actually does express at least a view of what would occur even in our own day and time. And it will express to us the coming of the Messiah with great detail, all kinds of wonderful things. And so I want you to take copious notes, grab the CDs, Uh, Remember that your Bible is accurate. Your Bible is trustworthy. One of the blessings of the prophetic word of God is it gives us validation of the words that have been spoken. And because they were spoken ahead of time, we now have a picture that only a God who dwells outside of space and time could ever give. That's actually the problem with Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it's the problem with his astrologers. It's the problem with his sorcerers. Uh, When push comes to shove, there's no astrologer on this earth today that can foretell the future. They can't do it. They can guess. They can make all kinds of statistical analyses and say that there's a likelihood or a chance that something might occur. But only your Bible has foretold the future with 100% accuracy insofar as it's been fulfilled, and those things that are yet future will come to pass. They give us great hope for the things that lie ahead. And so I pray uh, that this will be a blessing for us as we study together. I know it's a blessing for me as I get to study to teach, and I pray that we'll grow immensely from our time in this book. And so... Uh, let's pray and ask God to speak to us now as we study his word. Father God, we, again, Lord, what an amazing book this book is. And, Lord, we're so blessed that you saw in your sovereignty the need to preserve it, uh, a copy of it that was, that was written and dated that we have in our possession uh, several hundred years before the coming of the Messiah. And so there could be no fudging on it. 
It wasn't, wasn't written after the fact. It wasn't written after Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, it was written before these things occurred. And so, God, we pray uh, that you would speak to us, anoint our ears to hear, our minds to receive, our hearts to know uh, the depths of your word. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel chapter 2, and we all know the scene. The guys have passed the test. They're, they're getting ready now to uh, be used of the Lord in this time of captivity. And it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And I want to remind you of something. Whenever you see dreams, dreams occur only when you're asleep, in that twilight place between consciousness and waking up. But you are asleep. Visions occur when you're awake. Okay, So remember those two things. So when you see dreams, somebody's been sleeping. When you see visions, they're awake. Really very, very important that you keep those things uh, separated in your mind. Sometimes we have a tendency to lump them together. They're not the same thing. A vision is something that you have uh, when you are awake. Okay? If it were otherwise, it would be a dream. Had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. It's actually explained for you there. He's sound asleep. Sleep goes away. It says he wakes up. And then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And so it begins here with a very specific date and time. Daniel was carried away. We know this because of the reign of the kings of the time, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, uh, followed by Zedekiah, the son of Jehoiakim. And so we know exactly when this occurred. Uh, it occurred in 605 B.C., and we remember that they were supposed to receive three years of training. And some people look at this and they go, well, see, there's one of those contradictions in the Bible. There's only two years difference between those two times. And, of course, the calendar that they were using at the time was the Babylonian calendar. It dated from spring. It did not date from the beginning of the year in January, but dated actually from April. And so just like you and I would say that there have been three years when we pass from one year to the next, in other words, when you're one year old, you've actually been alive for a year, amen? And in the second year, you're two years old, amen? But you've actually only been alive for one year and one month. Your first birthday is your first birthday. Your second birthday, you've actually only been alive a year. Very similar situation here. So those three years are marked by the Babylonian calendar, and they're marked based on the spring of the year, which means that in essence at the end of the second year, one could have said, I've had three years. Just like you and I would say, I'm two years old, uh, when I'm actually only a year old and one day. And so it actually is very easy to understand from that perspective. And so consequently, these youths complete their training in that third year just before Nisan in 602, and the second official year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. So there's no contradiction whatsoever here. Uh, it's very clear when you look at the dating uh, in the time. One of the things that is most amazing about the book of Daniel is there is a switch here. And the copy, the full copy that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as you begin chapter 2, it is written first in chapter 1, and the first few verses of chapter 2, it's written in ancient Hebrew. It switches to Aramaic. And literally the copy that we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you switch from Hebrew to Aramaic, and it stays Aramaic all the way until you get near the end of chapter 7. Then it switches back to Hebrew. Very interesting time that's described there because it is the time of the church age. The, the things that are foretold there are being spoken of in Aramaic, which is the language that the Hebrews would speak as they came out of the captivity. And so God in his great wisdom writes these prophetic things in the very same language that would be the language that Jesus would actually speak 
in the region of Galilee. It would be the common language of the common people. It would also be the language that the, the Jewish people would speak when they returned from this captivity that they're currently in. So in essence, the switch of language is also divine. Because had it been in Hebrew, the Jews wouldn't have been able to read it. They had been taught, in essence, they had a whole generation of people that now spoke Aramaic. And so they would be the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. When Jesus would come, that marked the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And so the language change in the original text of this particular book actually goes from Hebrew to Aramaic. The very language that they were learning at this time in in captivity would be the language they actually spoke when they got out, and the events being described would actually be very easily learnable to a vast majority of people. Were it confined to Hebrew, very few people would have spoke that. They spoke both Greek and Aramaic. And so God in his sovereign plan allows us to, to have a copy It was written in 212 B.C. of the book of Daniel with the language change that occurs in this chapter. Those types of things, folks, you can't fake. And these are huge problems for people that say that the Bible is not trustworthy. Because if the Bible were not trustworthy, maybe you'd have a copy of it that was written in Greek, or possibly you would have had one that was entirely in Hebrew, or maybe one that was completely in Aramaic. But for the first chapter and a few verses to be written in Hebrew and then switch over to Aramaic and then back to Hebrew, which is the part of the book of Daniel that would have been written to the Jews as they came out. And so those that could understand that, that God had dealt with them faithfully, it's nothing other than mind boggling. It's one of those things you look at it and you go, only God could do this. There are actually three official periods of Aramaic, one from the 10th to the 7th century B.C., another one from the 6th to the 4th, and then 3rd uh, century forward, actually into the probably the first 100 or so years uh, of the church age. And so this is staggering. In other words, the, the times of the Gentiles was written by Hebrews to the Gentiles in their own language. Awesome stuff. If you... Remember, this book will actually define those times in chapter 9, and that's, of course, the chapter that will describe for us that final uh, year in, or that final period in church history and that final uh, time when the church is snatched away, followed by the tribulation of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, all of those things. And so uh, God was giving them a view of the future. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus was speaking Aramaic, And when Jesus' timing was described to the day in Aramaic or in Hebrew, but it was written to the Jewish people so that they could understand it, I'd be looking around going, "Ah, this guy might just well be the Messiah. You see, all of these things are necessary when you're talking to somebody about the reliability of Scripture. Ask them to explain that sometimes. Have them go online. You can go online to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can look up the book of Daniel and what it will say there is Hebrew, Aramaic, Hebrew. Crazy stuff. God was going to give them a vision. Basically what's happening here in this first chapter is King Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out exactly what Paul declared some six centuries later. If you remember in our study in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says this, From one man, he made every nation of men. So Paul goes back to the beginning. In the beginning that God created Adam and Eve, every nation came out of that one man, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them, the exact places that they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, Though he is not far from each one of us, God has always found a way to speak to all men at all times. Every language, every tongue, every bit of diversity. And so we we understand that when Scripture makes the promise that God desires all men to be saved, if God desires something, he's more than able to get it done. The problem will never be on God's side. It's always on man's side. 
The visions that we're going to see here, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you will, is like a skeleton. It's the easiest way to look at it. It's like a skeleton upon which the sinews and the flesh and the muscles and everything else about humanity uh, begins to be hung. It's going to describe these world empires uh, that will come on the scene that will one after another uh, cease to be from the earth. And then it leaves this incredible picture uh, that's a hole that can be occupied by the church and it leaves a place for a final age that is yet to come. And so many of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, actually come together as we study the book of Daniel. They, they are a little bit uh, distanced one from another if you read them alone. But when you read the book of Daniel, you go, ah, that's what God was saying. So he does provide us with the whole picture. And, of course, the sub- subsequent visions and dreams uh, that we'll get to in the book of Daniel add in all kinds of detail, and they will help us to actually rightly interpret the book of Revelation as well. Uh, It gives us an image of God's uh, forecast of church history, if you will. And you can look at it this way, that that it's God's plan for the times of the the Gentiles, if you will, are kind of encoded. In other words, they're they're written in code in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Daniel's interpretation of that dream, they are all of a sudden decoded. All of a sudden it's like, whoa, okay, Who, who is that head of gold? Who are those shoulders and those arms of silver and who is that breast and and who are those feet of clay mixed with or iron mixed with clay you start to look at those things you go oh okay i got it now and then you realize that hey some of that hasn't happened yet and so daniel is our ability to see those things nebuchadnezzar's dream gives us a wonderful picture of how we can actually look at our world today And here's why. It doesn't matter what world ruler you're talking about. They are never bigger than God. It doesn't matter whether it's our president. doesn't matter if it's some group of people from the UN or the EU or somebody rises up in Iran or some Chinese dictator or Adolf Hitler. God himself is the one who raises up kings and kingdoms. God himself uses those kings and kingdoms for his purposes. And when he's done with them, he does what he wants with them. And for all of Nebuchadnezzar's power, and for all of his wealth, and for all of his purported wisdom, and for all of his help that he has with these magicians and astrologers, when God says, this is what I'm going to do, God does what he says he's going to do. And so people who freak out, and I, and I find it rather interesting that, that well-meaning and well-intended Christians have a problem studying prophecy because they don't want to know. It's like there's a measure of fear that falls over. Well, I don't want to know if we're close to the end. That, to me, that, that's almost scary that people think that way. Not only would I want to know, I'm excited to know. If God cares enough to tell us, I want to know what he's saying. And so don't be afraid. People often, well, you know, we might have nuclear war. Trust me, if we have nuclear war, God's bigger than A-bombs. God's bigger than world empires. God's, God's got it under control. And he has always preserved his people. He has never forsaken his people. Now, that may mean that the rapture's right around the corner. Maybe that's the next thing that's on the, the world scene. I don't know. It might happen. I've believed for a long time. I, I really don't plan on living out my life on this earth. I plan on going to see Jesus with a shout and with a trumpet. But this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has just shows exactly how ultimately frail the human condition is. Nobody's immune to God working in your heart and in your mind. And when you're asleep, he's got full access, and the enemy does too at times. So we see that he's having this recurring dream. God impresses this dream upon him so deeply that in that state of mind, I don't know if you ever have these dreams. I do have these kind of dreams to where I have them repetitively. I have the same dream, and it happens for weeks. Sometimes it happens for months. Uh, every, I have a couple of them that have reoccurred for the last 20 years in my life, and they are the same dream. I go back to exactly the same place, the same event. Sometimes I make it a little further in the timeline of that dream. 
Um, but God still, I believe, speaks uh, to us at least to some degree uh, through those through those dreams. And sometimes they're encouraging. Sometimes they're knowledge that we need to have. There are all kinds of things that God can do because God is God. Sometimes the enemy gets in and tries to work his little ways in, in your twilight and in your slumber. But as Nebuchadnezzar cries out, I want you to notice what he cries out for, the same thing that the whole world cries out for, cries out for answers in the flesh. Cries out for those things that somehow are going to make sense out of, out of the unsensible, if you will, uh, from God's perspective. Can I say to you that God has left a significant portion of his plan for this earth and for all of us as a mystery? He's done that intentionally. Sometimes people have a problem with that. Well, how come God doesn't tell us? Because if he tells us, then we have a problem with the timing issue. And Scripture clearly declares that no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man comes. And so if God filled in all of the little tiny details, then you might be able to say that he's actually foretold that time and he's given it to a certain group of people who could understand that information. But he hasn't. He's left enough holes that rapture could happen today, might happen next week, next month, next year, may not happen in my lifetime. I don't think so, but it might not. And so God works in his time frame. Powerful people want answers now, amen? And that has bled over into our society, hasn't it? To where we don't like to wait for anything. When I ask, I don't know if any of you do this, but in my prayer life, most things I'm okay with just waiting on the Lord. But there are some things it's like, Lord, you have to answer this tomorrow. I want the answer right now. And if you don't give it to me right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep, you're going to bug you. So you tell me. God doesn't work that way. And so Nebuchadnezzar's like, okay, well, I'll just get the brightest minds. I'll put them all together, get them all in one room, and surely they'll be able to do it because this is not supernatural. You have to imagine that what Nebuchadnezzar's doing is saying, you know what, there's an answer to this, and I don't need God. That is the question everybody gets asked. Everybody is forced to deal with that aspect of your life. There are things that come up to which there are no answers but God. Whether you're Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, or whether you're you, there are questions that God leaves you that nobody can answer but him. He does that intentionally. He calls in the Chaldeans, and by the way, that is a generic term uh, that means astrologer, magician, all kinds of things. It had... In essence, uh, there was a temple cult at that time, and it really meant a whole group of people. It wasn't just a people like Abraham, if you remember, uh, was in the land of the Chaldeans, basically the same place. Uh, the Ur of the Chaldees was this same area of Bab- that is now occupied by Babylon. And so verse 4, we pick up, and then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, why would he do that? How, how come? Because God wants the entire world to know what's being said. And if it had been in, you know, some cuneiform script, if it had been in Hebrew, chances are it would have been lost. Probably wouldn't have been carried on if it was just Hebrew. And so, and then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll give you an interpretation. Well, that's hard. Uh, I was at the store last week. Where were you? I was at the store. You know, kind of tell me what it was that you had, and then I'll tell you what it means. You ever notice that's kind of the human response to these types of things? Well, kind of give me some, what were you thinking? You know, how were you? Give me some details, and I'll interpret it for you. That isn't what's going to happen here. It's going to go down the hard way. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known to the dream to me, and its interpretation, you shall be cut to pieces. And your houses shall be made ash heaps. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me, rewards, and great honor. And therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So the king is not just asking them to interpret something that he speaks to them. He's saying, I want you to know supernaturally, first, what the dream is, And then I want you to tell me what it means. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I haven't found anybody that can do this yet. I've never had anybody, hey, do you know what my dream was about last night? Because they'll always ask, well, well, what was it? And then they'll go, oh, well, you know, the, the fruit tree means that you're going to get some money and the other, and the chickens, I don't know what those are. And the atomic bomb, that's you because you're apocalyptic. And, you know, when you tell somebody what you've, what you've seen, then of course they can come up with some kind of interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar is really testing them here. And, and he's flinging the door wide open for the only answer to be but God. You see, if half of this was not true, if the king had come out and said, you know, well, I saw this giant statue and, you know, it had a head of gold, and he goes down the list of all the things that we're going to see next time, then probably most of them could have got pretty close. They would have put their heads together and, okay, well, he's seeing this, and what do you think that is? And, oh, yeah, well, the head of gold, that's him. They might have gotten it. And he answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. You just tell us what it is. We'll interpret it for you. The king says, I'll have none of it. The king answered and said in verse 8, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words to me before the time has changed. And therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that it's you that can give me its interpretation. If you can't tell me what the dream is, I'm not going to trust you with the interpretation. If you can't do the whole enchilada, I ain't eating the sauce. He's making it really, 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 really difficult. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, "Theirs, and, and I love this because this is blunt honesty here. This is our goose is cooked. We are dead meat. It's over. The jig is up. We just got found out. There's not one of us here that's going to be able to do this. Uh, we were pretty good at throwing some stones on the ground and some cat hair and a couple of chicken lips. And, you know, we could do a few things that way, but uh, this is not going to work. It's not going over good. And the Chaldeans answered and said to the king, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. I love this. Because God-sized problems require God-sized answers. God-sized problems require God-sized answers. This is how God works. We see God most and best when it's completely impossible. Amen? When, When there's no way out of it, when there's nothing anybody can do, when there's nothing anyone can say, when humanly you're out of options, that's when we see God the best. That's when we see Him the most. That's the type of thing that, that just stands out in our lives. I've had so many of these experiences in my life, I, I could just sit here for a couple hours and just tell you about things that only God could do. Just endless things. It's just like, Lord, this is not going to happen unless you do it. There's not a man on earth who can make this happen. Lord, it's up to you, and if you want it to happen, you're going to have to do it, because nobody else can do it. Hallelujah, that the Lord allows those things into our life. Now, sometimes we don't like what's going on. I'll tell you, I would not be real happy about being in a foreign country, standing in the court of the foreign king, having him tell me, your head's coming off, and by the way, I'm burning your house to the ground. That's not something any of us look forward to. Not a man that can tell the king's matter. And therefore, no king, lord, or ruler have ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Come on, king, you're being unfair. I mean, you got to at least, you know, give us the ability to lie and cheat and connive. I mean, that's the only tools we got at our resources, man. We're of Satan, and we need to use what he uses, which is deception. Now, that's not found in your text. But that's exactly what's being said there. We can't. This requires truth. This requires knowledge. 
This requires knowledge from someplace other than us and our humanity. This isn't earthly wisdom. This actually comes from God. We attest God like this occasionally, folks. He likes to show himself big. And sometimes when you think you can't, that's when you need to just ask him. Nobody's ever asked such things. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell the king except the gods. I love that. It's like we're bailing on this one. Uh, Our out is uh, nobody can do this except for one of the Babylonian gods. And we're not them. They're trying to get out of it. Whose dwelling, notice this, is not with flesh. They even get it. The fake liars, you, you see, the picture here, you guys have actually had happen to you at times. People come to you when, you know, if you know the Lord, you've been walking with the Lord, and it's evidenced in your life. When things go bad and there's no earthly answer, your non-Christian friends are going to call you and ask you what your God thinks, because your God shows up bigger than their God does. They're going to go, man, what's up? Every time we have difficulty and we go through things, and as we stand on the Word of God and as we stand on the power of the Lord, other people are looking at you going, man, it worked. They had answers when nobody else had answers. They had peace when nobody else had peace. They were able to go through that thing, and nobody else could go through that thing, but they went through that thing. I remember getting interviewed after the slide fire. And I, I was sitting there talking to this news camera crew. I never made it on television because what I said wasn't good for TV. Because they had a picture of the fire map. And it, and it showed basically this place, this little tiny enclave here. It's like God's hand was right over the top of it. 200 yards that way, there were 47 homes that burned to the ground. And they're going, well, what would I just said? You know what? That's the hand of God. There's no other explanation for it. Houses burned all around it. And church is still there. Yep, church is still there. God-sized problem, God-sized answer. Now, it didn't make it to the news because they didn't want to put that on television. I mean, God getting glory for something? If I'd said I'd done some wicked chant or something, you know, and... Yeah, well, you know, there was this dead cat in the road, and I grabbed it, and I, you know, I lifted it up on high and said four or five things. and I'd have made the news for sure. And then I'd have gone to jail for touching a dead cat. Cats have more rights than humans. God-sized problem, God-sized answer. You need to learn to look for God-sized answers and God-sized problems. King Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of history's shrewdest monarchs. And most likely, uh, he was attributing all this to the god uh, Marduk, who he worshipped. And, and he's sitting, well, there's got to be somebody in my kingdom that has an answer to it. You know, I'm thankful. It's like, it's like Winston Churchill said, if you ever needed a reason to believe in God you need to look no further than the existence of the Jewish people. That's a God-sized problem. The fact that they have their own country, the fact that they exist on the earth at all, those are the types of things that we can look at and go, history books say they should be gone. My Bible says they'll never be gone. Ever. They will never be wiped out. Some people are looking at the Middle East right now and they're going, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, why don't the Jews just give up and just kind of disperse? They already did that once. Scripture says they won't do that a second time once they're back into the land that they will remain there until the Lord comes. I'm hanging my hat on that. You see, he wanted to make sure that the, the answer was a valid one and it came from some supernatural source. Nebuchadnezzar's negative consequences were very fearful, and the positive rewards were great. Isn't that exactly what the world tries to do to us today? Oh, well, you better not do that, you know, because you'll, 
Man, I mean, you'll never get ahead in life if you do that. You're going to trust in God? No, man, you've got to lie, cheat, and steal your way to the top. That's the way you get ahead. You climb up somebody else's back. You push them down, you'll get ahead. You need to take it from somebody, man. Only bums sleep on park benches, you know. You've got you to gotta reach out and get you some because it's going to pass you by. And then comes the threat. Well, you know, you'll just never amount to anything. The history of the church is filled with people who would never amount to anything that God used in mighty ways. Crazy when you when you look back at the history of the church. You, know, you look at people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther. You know, the fact that he lived long enough to do anything is, is staggering. Augustine and Hippo. You know, there's just so many martyrs in, the, in church history. You look back, you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't get it, have a copy. Just go online. You can download it for free. Read what happened in, in the Smithfield period in England. Or take people out every single day and try and get them to renounce Jesus. No, turn your allegiance to the king. Hmm. <laughs> Now you can burn me, you can tear me apart, you can do whatever you want, but I'm sticking with Jesus. When God works in your life, and when God is at work in your life, and if he gives you a dream, you will not be able to forget it. And I believe this was a God-ordained dream, because we have it here in Scripture. It may have come to a pagan king, it, he may have been a total heathen, Everybody around him, save Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, were heathens. But God uses heathens. People ask, well, you know, I don't know why, you know, God doesn't just deal with them. Because two things. Number one, God wants people to be saved. And if he just kills them, it's kind of tough to save them. Number two, he's at work in those people's lives no matter what they're doing. I've met pastors that weren't saved. I absolutely can tell you because they told me they weren't saved because they got saved later. And yet they're preaching from a pulpit and people are getting saved from their preaching. God uses heathens. God uses heathen governments. God uses disasters. God uses calamity and catastrophe. He uses pain. He uses suffering. He uses sorrow. God uses everything on this earth. And we need to broaden our view a little bit because I believe a lot of people have a problem with God because they have a problem with God doing such things. Well, how come God doesn't make the whole world good? Because the moment he made the whole world good, about two-thirds of the world would be against him. And so he allows evil to, to linger a while. And he works in hearts of men very slowly. And he brings things just like he does here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And he says, you know what? I'm going to suffer a while longer with him. I'm going to give him an opportunity. Every time God doesn't exercise his righteous justice and judgment is an opportunity for whoever he's talking to to repent. Remember that. Because such were some of you. Such was I. I am so thankful that God didn't. Well, that's the third time. <laughs> Wow, it's kind of, kind of black, charcoalish looking. God just keeps working. I wonder how many Babylonians saw and heard of this and actually got saved. You can only imagine what those advisors were, were thinking of at that point in time. The whole dream was just like something nobody wanted to hear. Mistrust and... Lack of ability to explain it in a human sense. That's why it's so funny. I, I kind of, I, and forgive me, but I kind of relish in the, the presidential debates and all the banter that goes back and forth and, and how foolish at times both sides look as they're trying to outdo each other and, you know, outward merchant each other. And then ultimately they say something that's so lame, so stupid, and so dumb that there is nothing they can do but go, oh, you know, well, my speechwriter wrote it. You know, oh, the teleprompter was broken or whatever. That's all the higher up the ladder the flesh can go. 
They've exhausted the flesh. God very often exhausts the flesh. He lets the flesh go right to the edge, and then it's like, nope, we're going to stop right here. Unwittingly, the Chaldeans told the king point blank that his request was unreasonable, and their explanation was absolutely accurate. Going to get him killed, but at least they finally said something that was true. Uh, nobody can do this that's on this earth. King's assessment of it was that they were frauds, and that's exactly what they were. So I'm wondering, you know, after this happened, I'm wondering exactly how many people, you know, went to astrologer school. You know, you go on late night television infomercial, Chaldeans wanted. Probably not too much. So God can deal with those things, those systems that are in place that we think can't be moved. Now we look at our country right now. Man, we're heading the wrong direction fast. But make no mistake, God puts periods and apostrophes where he wants. He puts commas in human history constantly. And it may look like the end is near. And he can say, no, I'm not done yet. And so their declaration is no one can reveal to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. Verse 12, And for this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. I'm I'm thinking, they're all looking for the nutbag that said, Hey, tell them the truth. It can't be done. They're probably chasing him right now, someplace in outer outskirts of Babylon. I can't believe you said that. Were you dumb? And so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So now they're lumped in with the same crowd that had their chance and couldn't perform the task. The advisors make the king so angry, so furious, that he orders the execution of everybody. The beginning of verse 12 probably refers to the king's disappointment, certainly. It undoubtedly uh, probably gave him a conclusion to the suspicions he may have had anyway. Uh, Chances are this is just the way the flesh works. We see this work in our political system, amen? Somebody fails, what do we do? (laughs) Right to the curb. It's like you could have lived out, I, I, one of the things, and you know, there are a few of us in here that, that have been around long enough to appreciate, you know, President Richard Nixon was not completely evil. He came into this country as president in a very, very, very difficult situation. This country was a mess. I didn't have to fight in the Vietnam War because of him. He actually had enough guts to say, we're done. We've been there long enough. We've lost enough men already. The war's over. We'll, we're pulling out. The only thing he's remembered for is Watergate. Amen? That's it. He, he lived with that torture the rest of his days. That's the world. The world will use you and abuse you and chew you up and then spit you out when it's done. That's what it does. And I guarantee you, while everything was good... King Nebuchadnezzar is a young guy. He may very well have been between 19 and 25 years old. He's a young guy. He's got a lot of years ahead of him. And here all these guys have been faithfully you know, doing what they do, lying, cheating, and deceiving, which is kind of describes politicians in general. As soon as they make one mistake, makes him look bad, you're out. That's where God comes in. That's why I'm kind of excited about what's going on in our country right now. Things are so messed up, we need a God-sized solution. And that's what we need to pray for. Verse 14. And then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. He said, well, because the king's had a bad day. 
Nobody disrespects the king. When the king asks, the people listen, and they do. And they couldn't. And unfortunately, because you are wearing your astrologer badge, even though you happen to be Jewish young men, uh, you're in with them. And so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time. I love this, because this shows us how we need to respond in times of difficulty. He didn't go in making demands. He didn't go in and plead his case. He didn't say, hey, I'm not with them. He didn't do any of those things. He said, why don't you give me a chance? Give me a little time. Give my God some time. Then you might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. There are some wonderful truths here that begin to unfold as we wrap this part up tonight. First thing they do is they hold a prayer meeting. The first thing they do is say, this is way beyond us. This isn't something we can handle. There's only one person that can handle this. It's God. We need to know what God wants us to do. And so he says to his companions that they might seek the mercies from God of heaven concerning this secret. Notice what they ask for. They don't ask for justice. They don't ask for judgment. They ask for the mercies of God. The mercies are those things which God gives to us instead of giving to us what we do deserve. Because they were in captivity because they were part of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people had been unfaithful. So to some degree, God didn't owe them anything. It wasn't like like they were so far removed from the situation. But I want you to see a couple of things. God deals with us as individuals is number one. God deals with us as individuals always. Even though this is, in essence, they're fighting for the life of the Jewish people, God's dealing with them as individuals. And they handle it correctly. They say, God, please don't give us what we've deserved. Don't give us what we've earned. Don't don't hang on us the things that we ought to get because of what we've done. Lord, we're asking for your mercy. We're asking for favor when we deserve judgment. We're Jews. We partook of it too. We're not guiltless. We're not faultless. We're not perfect. Lord, give us your mercy. Man, when you have a situation in your life, the first thing you need to do is cry out to the Lord for mercy. Mercy, Lord, because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve for the good to be and the good of the Lord to come upon me. I haven't earned his favor. His favor is unmerited. It's grace. And so he could still rightly give me his justice and judgment. It would be perfectly fair. I've earned hell still. But praise God, I'm not getting it. By his grace, I receive his mercy. And so Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They do this thing. So instead of taking it upon themselves and coming up with a plan, notice what it doesn't say. They did not form a committee. They didn't take a vote. None of them sat around and said, hey, I got this great idea. You know, let's, let's do a flow chart. Let's come up with a five-year plan to get ourselves out of here. You know, I think if we just hire the right people, you know, hey, I got it. Azariah, you've got a 401k, right? Why don't you empty that? We're going to hire a couple of consultants, and they're going to go do a poll. And we'll ask all of the rest of the Jewish people what they think about this, and we'll come up with a consensus. No, they just sought the Lord of heaven. They said, God, this, this, is, this is you, or it's, it's nothing. Only you can fix it. Urgent time of prayer. Daniel knew the importance of praying. I've shared with you before, I don't think the church prays enough. We have prayer time before every service. Sometimes there's a lot of people, and sometimes there's virtually nobody. And I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on anybody, 
we need the voice of the Lord like never before. Our country needs a touch from God or we're in trouble. Our kids are being hounded by Satan himself in, in the world system and the way our nation's going and especially the way this state is going. We need God like we've never needed him before, but sometimes our prayer lives don't indicate that. It's like we're okay. We're all right. How much urgency is there to your prayer life would be a good question to ask. Because for these guys, there was nothing more important than seeking the face of the king, the real king. Not the phony king, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord of hosts. We need to cultivate a prayer life that's based on God's promises. They knew who God was. They remember the the words that were spoken of by the prophets, that God would tell them things that they do not know. That's a direct quote, by the way, from the prophet Jeremiah, who was writing at the same time. New Testament, James says virtually the same thing. says it a little differently. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let let them ask of God. And he gives liberally to all who ask. God wants to speak to us. Problem is, we don't want to speak to God a lot of times. We're not even asking. And we're certainly not crying out for his mercy. Lord, I deserve better than this. Anybody ever pray like that? I have. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I have prayed like that. I deserve better than this, God. I've lived long enough and walked with the Lord long enough to know that that prayer should never come out of my mouth. Because I don't deserve anything. What I deserve is a very warm place for all eternity. But praise God, I'm not getting that. Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge correctly or rightly. And it's a reflection of God's light in this world. When you think of wisdom, a good way to think of it is it sheds light on the information. Because information is just information, amen? It's what you do with it that matters. I can tell you that the speed limit out here is supposed to be 35 miles an hour. Okay, the information is it's 35 miles an hour. It's an asphalt street. But wisdom says, I better look. That's the ability to use that knowledge correctly. Because because it's 35 miles an hour, maybe you can run 36. You think you can dash across the road and not get run over. You have to have a little thing called timing. And that timing is the wisdom to look both directions before you head out across the street. You see, it's the ability to use it correctly And you can look at it as light. God sheds his light on that situation. His wisdom then invades that situation and affects that knowledge that you have so that you use it correctly. Daniel and his friends begin to pray. And it says here in verse 19, And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now I want you to notice this. He's awake. Okay? A vision is awake. How do we know that? They're having a prayer meeting. In the midst of that prayer meeting, he receives a vision. They are praying. They're seeking God. And God speaks. Sometimes the reason we don't hear from the Lord, we're not talking to him. We're doing everything but talking to him. We're talking to everybody else but him. I'm just describing myself, not you. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So that Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He says, Lord, thank you. And Daniel answered and said, and this is literally a prayer. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. I'm going to give you eight things out of this prayer in a second. Just jot them down quickly. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. I love that. Times and seasons can be affected by God. We think they can't. In other words, we would say in one of our in one of our modern axioms, time is short. That's that's something that we say repetitively. Time is short. But you realize that God can make one second last a couple hundred years if He wants to. He can do whatever He wants with time. He invented it. He dwells outside of it, 
and he can do anything he wants. And seasons. We say, well, there's a season for, for this and a season for that. God can change seasons. May not look like it's a season for repentance in our nation, but God can make it a season for repentance. The question is, will we pray for it? Will we ask God to do it? I love this prayer. He gives wisdom to the wise. I love that. The implication is Daniel and his friends were already wise. They already had a measure of wisdom. Anybody else need some extra wisdom if you've already got it? I do. I want all I can get. I want God to to speak into my life even when I think I already know. Knowledge to those who have understanding. In other words, he adds to the information pool. He not only tells you how to use it correctly, but he'll actually give you additional information. Sometimes that's directly from heaven. He reveals the deep and the secret things. Oh, this was a deep and a secret thing. Amen? You realize God wants to speak that way to you now? This isn't just something that happened in the Old Testament. This is God's workings. This is how he functions. He speaks things into your life that nobody else can speak. He does things that nobody else can do. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. He knows the difference between light and dark. That's tough to tell sometimes, isn't it? I, I get people all the time that you know ask me if something's evil or not, something's bad or not, something's against God or not. God has the answers to those things. Will we ask him? I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. Notice how he's praying here. And you have given me wisdom and might, and you've now made known to me what we asked of you. Notice the order there. You've made known to me what we asked of you. God speaks best and loudest and clearest when we actually ask of him. When we're in communication with him. When we're talking to him. And that's not a bunch of special words. It is not a position. It's not, you know, if you... Always pray on your knees. God answers that prayer. It's, are you talking? Are you in communication with God? His phone lines are always open. He's got an instant on internet connection all the time. He's never off duty. He's not sleeping. He's not too busy. You don't have to make an appointment. You can just talk. Say, God... I don't know, I need to know, and I know you know. Please tell me what I need to know. And if he doesn't speak, you don't need to know. Whether you don't need to know right now, or you need to know later, or you don't need to know ever, God has answered even when he says, you don't need to know. Now you've made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. And we'll get to the actual dream next time. But the the beautiful picture is this. And Paul echoes this. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, if you remember correctly. But God has revealed to him in the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things. There in chapter 2, verse 10 it says, "The, The Spirit of God does that. What man knows the things of God except the Spirit of God? If we want to know the deep things, you, you, you can't just go get a book on it. There are things that are outside of man's wisdom, outside of man's capacity to even understand and or know. If you don't realize that, all you need to do is look at the creation-evolution debate, and you realize that mankind doesn't know as much as they think they do. Mankind hasn't figured out all the things that they think they've figured out. Matter of fact, there are more questions than answers currently. And the further we dig, the longer we look, the harder we, we troll those waters, so to speak. Uh, we're not getting the answers we want. Matter of fact, every stone that we turn seems to say, hey, there's a creator God behind all this. It's the only answer. Deep things. They were spoken to by the Spirit of God. I love this. Nebuchadnezzar took his worries to bed with them. Remember, he was tossing and turning and woke up. You know, he's like, damn, I'm just going to get up. You guys ever do that? You have like some gnarly dream. You're just like, I'm going to get up. 
I don't want to go through this again. I'm going to get up. Look at the exact opposite in Daniel's life. They took those worries to God in prayer. Said, God, we don't know. We can't figure it out. We're not going to bed until you talk to us. And that wasn't pridefulness on their part. They wanted to know what God wanted them to know. And so they said, God, speak to us. Nebuchadnezzar worries. Daniel has peace. The world worries. We have peace. There's a huge difference between those that trust in the Lord and those that don't. That's why there's such a gigantic difference when I do a memorial service for someone who truly knows the Lord and someone who does not know the Lord. They're two totally different situations. One has the peace of God. The other has the worries of the world. You want the peace of God, you need to talk to God. You can't get it from the world. The world won't give you peace. That's why Jesus said, my peace I give you. Not peace as the world gives do I give you, but my peace I give you. It's a peace that the world can't understand. Daniel was awake. He wasn't asleep. And he was busy occupying his time praying. Eight things that you can just briefly jot down that are found in this, this wonderful prayer. First thing, God's name is hallowed. It's, it's pronounced for what it is. He's holy. He's awesome. He is the only one who is who he is. There was nobody. The sorcerers were correct. There was no one alive on earth that could answer that question. Only God. But God. Number two. God's kingdom resides over the whole earth. It may not seem like it at times. There are days you wake up and you're sure that in your house dwells Satan. You're absolutely positive the Antichrist is somewhere in the house. But God is sovereign in all of the universe. And he wills to do as is his good pleasure even when it looks like he isn't there. He resides over the whole earth. He presides over the whole earth. He's got it under control. Number three, God fully exercises his will on the earth. We have a tough time with that. I have a tough time with that. God, where are you? I I read some of these things about child molesters, and I'm like, give me a gun. I'm going to shoot them. I'm going to send them where they belong. I know none of you think like that, but I do. Yeah, I think like that. I look at some of the stuff that's going on in Syria. We need to just take a sniper and shoot Bashar Assad. Get it over with. Take over. Install somebody new. I think like that. That's not God. That's my flesh. That's I'm getting angry at, at people being abused and killed and murdered. And it should make us angry, quite frankly. It makes God angry. The difference is God handles that anger in righteousness. I don't. A poor girl that was killed on Monday. You're on Highway 18. Second offense of a drunk driver. Took another life. Not a lot of compassion left in me. I can't imagine talking to those parents. That poor young lady. It's lost her life. But somehow, I know God can use it. We don't like the fact that it even exists, but God can do it. He exercises His will. Fourth thing, God gives wisdom to the wise. Don't forget that. You're never so wise as to not need the wisdom of God. You are never so wise as to not need the wisdom of God. Ever. Until you take your last breath on this earth, you need what God has. Fifth thing. God reveals deep and hidden things. God reveals things that no one else can reveal. You can't find it in a textbook. No Google search is going to bring it up. Okay? You can sit on the Internet all day long. You're not going to get an answer. But God can reveal those things. He has that capacity. God gives wisdom and power. The sixth thing. 
Sometimes we, we just we look at our human resources. I know you guys do this. You look at your human resources and you go, I'm dead. You look at your human resources and you go, it isn't going to happen. God can fix it. God can do it. He's capable to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask and or think. Amen? We need not When we pray, we need to pray a little bigger. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I pray for the obvious. It's like the lamest prayer on earth. You already know what you can do, and so you ask God to bless what you can do. Dare to ask Him for bigger things than that. Pray beyond your own abilities. Pray beyond the nation's abilities. Pray beyond the world's abilities. Pray bigger prayers. He can give wisdom and power. Seventh, and God makes known what we've asked for. And he does that three ways. Yes, he answers it outright. No, he answers it outright in the negative and says, not, not going to happen. Or, not time yet, you've got to wait. God always answers. God never does not answer your prayer. You may not like the answer you get, but he's answering. Take his answer. And if you haven't heard from him, that is the answer, wait. So when you ask God, you know, well, Lord, I'd like to have a million dollars. And you go to your bank, and there's not a million dollars in there. And you ask God to follow him, yeah, I'd like to have a million dollars. And you go, and there's no million dollars in there. There's only two options, no or wait. And so if you believe that's God, keep praying until he answers affirmatively. If you think that's the Lord's already answered, he's saying wait. Or he's saying no. He sure didn't say yes. You'd know by the zeros. And finally, God makes known the king's dreams. He's a revealer of the intents of the heart of man. And no matter who on this earth thinks they can fool God, they can't fool God. And when kings and potentates and rulers all over this earth think that they know everything, God very frequently makes them very foolish. He says, oh, that's what you think, but here's what I know. And we can trust him with that. The stage is now set for this dream that comes up in the next verse and begins there. We'll pick up there next time. Pray big. Big God. Amazing abilities. Dare to be a Daniel. A daniel et. Not trying to be sexist here. Be a daniel et, A Danielina. I don't know. A Daniela. There's a good one. We'll make them Danielas. Dare to be Daniels and Danielas this week. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, help us to pray like me, pray like Daniel prayed. Lord, help us to, to wait, to rest, to trust in you that your name would be holy, that your kingdom is all over the earth, even though we don't see it at times, that your powers are limitless, that your wisdom is beyond our understanding. God, all these things that are in this prayer, help us to pray like that. Help us to rest and trust and occupy until you come. Lord, truly help us to be Daniels. Daniela's, Lord, just help us to to know who you are and to trust you. Lord, that, that we would be found in this place too. God, when the tough things in life uh, come at us, that we'd be leaning on the everlasting arms of the one who loves us. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, thanks for allowing us the time to be together tonight. Lord, we bless you for it. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All righty, we'll pick up at 24 next time. Let me actually get the dream itself.